God, as we proclaim that this is your word and we say thank you, we pray that um, your spirit would be at work here to make that thanksgiving genuine, that, that what we desire, Lord, is for you to speak to us here on these pages. What we desire is for you to reveal yourself to us further. What we desire is for you to reveal yourself to us in such a way, Lord, that we can know you, that we can believe and trust in who, who you are, that through that belief you might change and transform our life, that, that you might speak to us in such a way that we'd be convicted of sin this morning that we'd see our need to throw ourselves upon your mercies at the cross, that we'd see our need for repentance and belief. And so, Lord, um, we, we come in this morning trusting so many different things other than you. We, we, we hear these competing voices throughout the week that attempts to draw our hearts away, and we come here, Lord, in need of your word to draw us back to you. And so we pray that you do that by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start with a question this morning. So have you ever wondered, probably not, maybe not, maybe not, but have you ever wondered why biographies take the shape they do? Like, what purpose does a biography really serve? And you might hear that and say, well, that's an obvious question, right? Like, it gives, a biography gives more complete glimpse into the life of an individual, right? And that's true. But I would argue, like, and maybe this is subtle, but I would argue that that's usually not what draws a reader into a biography. Like, that's not what creates demand for biographies to be written. And there is a demand, you know, like, book publishers know, they understand that people will read biographies. That's why, if you go into Barnes & Noble, there's an entire section, and it is usually kind of close to the front. I mean, it's out and open, because there's a, there's a demand for it. There's a niche, there's an audience of people who are eager to read Biography. So there is something that draws us in. I would say it's not just that we want to read about people in general. I think the reason we want to read about an individual is usually related to things that they did or events that took place surrounding them that we deem to be particularly interesting or important or intriguing for various reasons. Right. So for instance, just to make, kind of make the point and give some examples, I took a quick glance at our bookshelf in our home. So we have two very good biographies of Winston Churchill. And the reason we want to read about Churchill is because of the way he led through and handled the events of the Second World War. We have a couple of biographies on William Wilberforce. The reason we want to read about Wilberforce has to do with the significant part that he played in um, the abolition of slavery in the West, of really paving that road forward. We, we have a couple of biographies of Corrie Ten Boom. We want to read about her because of the way she trusted God. She extends forgiveness in the midst of and following Holocaust. Right? We hear about these kinds of events and we say, how did that happen? Right? And so we're intrigued and we want to hear more about this person. And we, we, could, we could continue down the list, right? but the point here is that Biographies, by nature of what they are, almost always seek to move first from identity to then the activity for which the individual is known, right? From identity to activity. They show us like, so, so we're interested in the, in the activity. So the biography shows us the man or woman behind the movement. And when we've seen this man or woman, when we see who they are, and when we've had time to see more of their identity, we actually get this much more complete understanding of the activity and how that was accomplished, right? Like, I don't think you can, you can really grasp how Corey Timboom forgave 
unless you read about what happened in her life prior and encounter with the living God that she had in her life prior. I don't see how you can get to the activity and make sense of it apart from the identity portion of it, right? Similarly, okay, but far more significantly, in John 1, the author is doing something of the same thing here. Okay, like he's moving us from identity to activity. He begins with the identity of this person who stands at the center of the gospel, the word. We talked about this a bit last week. And, and you know, I think the last two weeks are really foundational for us as we get going in the gospel according to John. They're really going to be helpful, you know, if... There are often times where we come in to a series midway and you're always welcome and we're going to do our best to like make sure that every single week you can come in and even if you missed one. And that's true here too, but, but I just really want to encourage you, if you missed, it will be really helpful to you just to go back and get caught up. You can catch it on, you know, we have an Apple podcast page, a Spotify uh, podcast um, you can go to YouTube and watch the service if watching is more helpful. But I would encourage you, because, you know, we made the decision last week to hold off on verses 2 to 5 until this week, and that's specifically because of what's happening in the text as we look at it now. So, so to connect this back, you know, what's happening? Well, to connect this back to the introduction, these gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I don't want to oversimplify, but I really do think this is the case, right? So, they're best understood, at least in part, as ancient biographies. Like, so these are biographical accounts, right? They're not like blueprints of, we talked about this two weeks ago, but they're not these blueprints of discipleship, this is what it looks like, cut and paste, what would Jesus do in a primary kind of way. These are biographies in the sense that they're, they're primarily here to give us, to show us the events of the gospel the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But before we get to what Jesus has done, we have this first verse that's primarily about who he is. And you know, the reason that John has to start here is because he's about to say some things. Even in this morning's text, even in verses 2 through 5, that would be outright heresy if he were ascribing this stuff to just some random dude, to just a person the way that you and I are people. Right? And so he has to spend some time first on the identity or else the activity itself will be suspect in the minds of his readers. And he knows the minds of his readers. You know, like he knows the people he's writing to. And he knows, you know, like for understandable reasons, you know, these first century readers, which I've argued are most likely primarily spiritually seeking Jews and Greeks. They have some kind of a background in the Old Testament text. But they're really curious about, like, the Old Testament talks about this Messiah, this coming king. Who is he? Who is he? Right? That's, that's what's on the forefront of their minds. And the reason, you know, those readers can give John a fair hearing, the reason they can continue to read the things that John is about to record without, like, throwing the parchment up against the wall and being like, that guy is crazy, is because of the time John now spends in this first verse unpacking identity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, before then moving on to activity this morning. So if you remember from last week, we ended with this quote from Barrett. John intends that the whole of his gospel shall be read in light of this verse, John 1.1. 1, 1. 
In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Barrett says the deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. If this be not true, the book is blasphemous, right? So everything that he's about to say ties right back into this verse. This is why John begins with identity, the identity of the Word, who he is even in his nature. Before now moving on to the activity of the Word that we see right away in verses 2 through 5. So set your eyes there with me. Here's our text for this morning. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. So, okay, so we saw last week. Do you remember? The outline was... The identity of the word in three short statements, right? So last week, the identity of the word in three short statements. This week we see the activity of the word in three places across salvation history. So the identity of the word, three short statements. The activity of the word in three places across salvation history. Another way of saying this is that last week we saw who the word is. The eternally pre-existent second person of the Trinity. Let's not get confused, right? There are passages of scripture that are primarily teaching us about the first person of the Trinity, the Father. Like, that's their intent, is to show us the Father, the Father who is God, the Father's not the Son, the Father's not the Spirit. And we have teachings in the Scripture that tell us more about the first person of the Trinity. We have places in the Scripture that tell us uniquely about the, second per, the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit. The Spirit is God. But the Spirit is not Jesus. The Spirit is not the Son, right? The Spirit is not the Father, okay? So here, though, we see... Specific teaching on the second person of the Trinity, the Word, the Son, the, the Son is God, the Son is not the Father. He's with God and He was God, right? So He's not the Father, He's not the Spirit, right? So, so we saw last week who the Word is, eternally preexistent second person of the Trinity. That's who the Word is. This week we get, get to see what He has done, okay? From identity to activity, the activity of the Word in three places across salvation history. First we see, verse 2, let's get started here, the activity of the word before creation. The activity of the word before creation. He was in the beginning with God. All right, so you hear that and you say, are we going to just do what we did last week? Right? Because this is, it is, right? On the one hand, it's a summary statement. John is writing a summary statement of verse 1. He's reiterating this. But he's also, like, we need to understand, this is like a hinge. This is like a translate, uh, sorry, like a, a transition verse. From verse 1 into then the rest of this chapter, it's, he's summarizing something significant that we need to continue to highlight before moving on, which is, you know, like, so that's, that, that's his identity. But we need to understand the activity of the word has always been, like, not only has God himself in his existence and who he is always been, like the word has always been active. The word's always been active. This is where we start to see the enormity of the task that John has in writing a biography about the person of Jesus Christ. You know, like that's a hard thing to do. Yeah, we have to recognize when he talks about like there's so many things, you know, that I could write and he's, he's needing to be real intentional about what he's putting in and what he's leaving out. And, like, this is an enormous task. Why? Because, like, 
With most biographies, the person that you're writing about, there's like a limited amount of material, you know? I mean like, um, the person has a beginning point. Harry Truman, right? Uh, before you ever get to the activity of Harry Truman, the 33rd president of the United States, we read that he was born in Barton County, Missouri. You know, like he wasn't always president. He wasn't. So it's kind of easy to go back and trace this life that has a starting point. There was a time when he was not, right? And then he was born, but he hadn't, there was like this time where he hadn't really done anything yet. You couldn't have very well referred to him as President Truman when he was in elementary school. And he doesn't have presidential ambitions, right? But like with Jesus, the Word, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, it's entirely different. Because John makes it clear, okay, there was never a time in which he himself was not God. There was never a time when he was not active as God. His activity goes back farther than we can even imagine. And we're going to talk about what that means. So this is important because like what John is doing is essentially saying, hey, you know, okay, we're about to read about this decree of God to send the Son into the world. And this decree that we're going to be reading about, and this is right in the context, it's, we're going to see it this week, we're going to see it next week, okay? Weeks following, and so much of John is based on, centered on this decree of God to send the Son. Okay, so God the Father to send the Son. All right, so this decree wasn't some plan B. Right, so this is really what John is getting at, and this is the, this is the, uh, the way that this is, is taught throughout the scriptures. This is the way that um, throughout church history we see this, especially early on in the church fathers. This gospel or good news that the scriptures hold out to us in the person of Jesus isn't reactive, impromptu, or ad hoc. This isn't God saying, ah, uh-oh, I didn't anticipate this problem of sin. What are we going to do about this? What am I going to do about this? You know, like... We will increasingly see a picture of a decree from the Father to send the Son in order to save his people that's based around who the Word is. And that decree itself is an eternal decree. The Word himself who would come and disclose God to his people already existing with God from the very beginning of time and space. More than that, as we'll see, right? So this really matters in the life of the Christian. It really matters in the life of the Christian. Again, we say stuff like this a lot. Hopefully we'll be drawing on more and more of it, like showing like how theology matters. Theology really matters. Doctrine matters. You know, like we say stuff like Jesus was eternally preexistent. There was never a time when he didn't exist. There, you know, we, we talked about that last week. We say things like that and we have these temptations to think they're ivory tower concepts, but they really matter. Like on the one hand, so last week we showed one way this is the case, the activity of the word before creation is seen in the activity of his perfect love from within the Godhead, perfect relationship, the Father loving the Son, loving the Spirit, loving the Father, loving the Son, right? Like this perfect, eternal, loving relationship. We saw why that matters for the Christian, like why that doctrine of the Trinity matters a great deal. But even the simple statement, the summary statement that John makes here, reiterating what he said in verse 1, matters in the same way because... Do you know what it would be like to serve and worship a God who is reactive to us in everything rather than sovereign over everything? Like, do you know what it would be like to, to, to serve a God who's kind of anthrocentric in the sense that like, okay, man does, I react, man does, I react. If you want a picture of that, you really don't have to look much further than the audience that, the Greek audience that John writes to. You know, first, um, late first and early second century 
Greek thought that John is speaking into here uh, is full of these deities that are reactive in everything, in everything, everything. Like, they don't know what's going to happen next. They don't, they don't seem like they're in control of much of everything. And so what do they have to do according to their own legends, right? They have to govern out of fear. The legends make it sound like even the creation accounts are like, they read like divine accidents. It's like, oh, didn't mean to put that valley there. You know, and it's, it's, it's kind of unhinged. And I think this is why, perhaps this is why, so many first century Greeks find their way into the synagogues. You know, like, a reactive God very quickly becomes something very much like a health, wealth, prosperity God. Because it's like, if I do, then he does. It's based on me in a lot of ways, right? He's reactive, so if I do, then he gives, right? And that's what first and second century Greek deities were like. You know, like, if you don't want your pigs to die, you go make a sacrifice. And if your pigs died, it's because you didn't do a very, you know, you didn't give enough. You didn't believe enough. You didn't have strong enough. Like, it's a health, wealth, prosperity gospel in the first century. Why? Because the gods are reactive. They're not sovereign, right? And so, like, I think this is why so many first century Greeks become God-fearing Greeks. Is like how Paul talks about them in Acts. Like, they're spiritually seeking. They find their way into the synagogues. They're drawn into this God of the Hebrew scriptures. Because he's very much in control of the world as they read about him. He's eternally pre-existent. He's a God that actually matches the description of what a God would be like if God existed. You know? A God who has control in the world can be called God. A God who doesn't have, who has no control, who has, doesn't know anything can very well be called God. And yet here we see that this good news that John is holding out to the readers, this decree of God himself to, to become flesh, to dwell among us, it's eternal, it's not some plan B. And why that matters for the Christian is that we can actually have a deep sense of trust for the God who was and is and will be. You know, it means that Jesus' love for you on the basis of his work and not your work, like, his love for you, his desire for you to know him, to believe in him, to call on his name, you know, like that desire from God, that's not at the whim of some new factor that will come up. That he now has, oh, I didn't take that into consideration, you know. I didn't like anticipate that that would happen. If, if God was reactive, man, I'm not sure how secure that would be. You know, if our God was a reactive God, I'm not sure that we could really trust in his love. Because new information comes up and it changes his mind. No, like you don't have to worry about God letting you down by pulling out of his promise. Because his promise is centrally seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the word. And that word is eternal and unchanging. The promise is eternal and unchanging. So when John moves from identity to activity, it's not redundant for him to tell us he was in the beginning with God. Because John desires to remind us of the activity of the word before creation. He was active long before the incarnation, guys. He was active long before creation itself. But now second we see the activity of the word in creation. So before creation, and now he's active in creation. Verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So there's this statement here that's made both positively and negatively. I want to break down both of those in just a minute. Before we get there, 
let's like back up and think through this holistic statement because we alluded to this last week. I said we'd come back to it because the text would show us more of it this week. But we come to see that not only was this word already in existence at creation and before creation, but he was the agent of creation. Like the father created the world through the son. And with this in mind, in Genesis, we actually get something of, I think, a picture of the triune God at work. The Father decreeing creation of the world, the Son being the one through whom the world is created. Speaking the world into existence, right? It's spoken by the Word. The Spirit of God hovering over the waters as life springs into to the world. We already see this activity of the triune God at work. And it reminds me of how, like, C.S. Lewis, you know, it's really hard to do um, a sermon on creation and new creation without coming to Lewis again. And seeing, you know, like in the, in the very last book he wrote in the Chronicles of Narnia, something of a prequel, it's like the first book chronologically, but it's the last book that he wrote, Magician's Nephew. We come to see like, because you make your way through the series and it's like, how did Narnia come in, even come into existence? We see it in this story, The Magician's Nephew, you know, and we see Aslan creating by way of the magic of the emperor beyond the sea. You know, like the emperor beyond the sea decrees this, decrees this creation. Aslan's the one who, who uh, becomes the emperor's agent in creation. And this is how Lewis describes the creation. He says, in, in the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice had begun to sing. One moment there had been Nothing but darkness. And so, like, why I think this is helpful is because Lewis helps our imaginations envision, like, life before creation, right? So, n nothing. <laughs> like, nothing but darkness. So, okay, in one moment, nothing but darkness. Next moment, a thousand, thousand points of light leaped out. Single stars, constellations, planets. The eastern sky changed from white to pink, from pink to gold. The voice rose and rose till all... The air was shaking with it, and just as it swelled to the mightiest and glorious sound it had yet produced, the sun arose. The earth was of many colors. They were fresh, hot, vivid. They made you feel excited until you saw the singer himself, and then you forgot everything else. It was a lion, Aslan, huge, shaggy, and bright. It stood facing the risen sun. Its mouth was wide open in song. The lion was pacing to and fro and singing his new song, a gentle rippling music, and as he walked and sang, the valley grew green with grass. It spread out from the lion like a pool. It ran up the sides of the little hills like a wave. Soon there would be other things besides grass. All this time, the lion's song and his stately prowl to and fro, backward and forward, was going on. So we, we get this picture in Lewis of the world created out of nothing, from the spoken word of the one who would later on step into that world in order to save it. You know, in Lewis's stories, Aslan steps into the world. He comes into the world in order to save the world. He's the one who created this world, through whom the world was created. And um, he obviously, Lewis obviously gets this imagery from the scriptures and, and what it has to say about the redeemer of the world, the one who came to redeem, also being the one through whom that world was created. In other words, not only would this word later become flesh and dwell among us, step into human history, but you know, he's the one who created time and space. He's the one who created human history by speaking it into existence. 
Space and time created by the word, speaking it into existence. John says, again, so he says this both positively and negatively, just to make sure we understand the force of it. Positively, right? All things were made through him, if you look at the text, right? Negatively, without him was not anything made that was made. Okay, so there are some people who look at this, I don't blame them at all, and they think like, it's probably, maybe it's not the best translation, because it's a bit clumsy, and it's redundant. Like one of the problems in Bible translation is this phenomenon of like, who speaks this way? You know? And like a good translation is supposed to bring the concepts into our language so that there can be this disconnect. And I think a, a lot of times it's really, it's hard for translators to do the, the both preserve the, the meaning of the text and kind of help us understand it in a way that like, who, you know, we, we actually speak this way. So it's hard work, for sure. And there are times when it fails us, you know, like, especially in narrative sometimes where somebody says, you know, a sentence and it's, you have to reread it like 12 times. Sometimes, like, some translations can make us feel like we're reading instructions on how to fix our DVD player where it's like, you know, um, this is pretty clearly Japanese that was translated into German and then the translation of the German is what's used to translate to the English and now I'm, like, lost, right? And it reads very technical, you know? Um, so some scholars have proposed something more readable, something more like this. I think this also does capture what John is after here. Maybe a bit easier to understand. All things were made by him, and what was made was in no way made without him. All things were made by him, and what was made was in no way made without him. I think that's good. I also think that positive and negative statement, let me just defend it for a minute. It's in your Bibles, most of you, and it's like, um, I think the point of the positive followed by the negative, even though it's hard to formulate in a way that makes it easy to read. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. I think the point that John's trying to utilize that I want us to, to maybe capture is that he's using expansive language. You know, like, he's trying to show the extremes on both ends. All things, not anything. And it's important for us to understand this. All things, not anything. John's positioning these expansive statements on both sides to show really like there are two categories here, you know? There's creator and creation. The creator has no beginning point. He is not created. He does not have a start. Everything else is created that is not him. Everything else is created. You know, nothing is created apart from him. Right? Um, and so, the creator created everything. Everything he created would not be here without him creating it. He created the world from nothing. Uh, in, in Christian doctrine, this is known as creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. And I do, you know, I find it to be the most fitting and powerful explanation of the world we live in. I do. You know, that something cannot come from nothing. The universe isn't eternal. That it would have had to have, at some point, had a first mover. That the way the universe expanded and our world came into existence and then would then have to be sustained in such perfect ways, from my perspective, would have to be non-coincidental. And John is saying here, there is a first mover who brought the world into creation. And he's none other than Jesus himself. This word. So the Apostle Paul, you know, so we think, okay, is John saying that Jesus created the world? You know, and um, yet this is how, this is how the rest of the scriptures speak about Christ. 
The Apostle Paul certainly writes about Jesus this way when we get to the book of Colossians. He says, for by him, the, he's saying Christ, Christ Jesus, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, just to make sure we understand, he says, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So, Jesus is both the creator and sustainer of the world he created, all things other than himself. Even, I think, in a more straightforward way, the author of Hebrews, right out of the gate, agrees with this, and he says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Jesus is the creator and sustainer of the world he created, everything other than himself, right? So we see the activity of the word before creation. An eternal decree of God to send his son into the world he would create. But we also see the activity of the word in creation itself. The one through whom and by whom the world is created. He sang, you know, what did he do in Genesis 1? Right? He, he sings out life and light. Like the word goes out in Genesis 1 and says, let there be light. You know, and there's light. The word is the one from whom life is created in the world, but, but as we'll see, and he speaks life into existence, but as we'll see, you know, even in this first chapter, there's a problem. And this is where John, like, introduces the problem. The problem's not with the word. The problem isn't with the word's activity, you know. But after the word creates, suddenly there's a problem. After seeing the activity before creation, the activity in creation, immediately at creation, actually just three chapters in, there's a problem. This world that the word created ended up rejecting its creator and attempting to essentially overthrow him and replace him, wanting themselves to be God, wanting ourselves to be God, wanting to be our own source of wisdom in life, wanting to end around true wisdom for our own wisdom, right? So this was this moment in which humanity essentially at creation decides to rebel against their creator. The question becomes, does that mean the activity of the word in creation needs to just start over? Does that mean that the activity of the word in creation was all for nothing? No, because this eternal decree, right, of the work of Jesus ultimately shows the activity of the word. Then, finally, thirdly, in new creation. Activity of the word before creation, in creation, and now in new creation. God is not done with us. Like, this is not plan B. He's not, you know, despite our sin, despite our failures, despite our brokenness, he's not done with us. Verses 4 and 5, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So, you go to Genesis 1, in creation, okay, and what do you find? The word proclaiming, let there be light, speaking life into existence. We talked about that. The author of light and life in this world. But God wants us to see, you know, like, the life and light that we know in this world 
is just a shadow of the true life and light that he offers us in Jesus. And so um, Grant Osborne writes this. I think it's helpful. Hang in there with me. He says, in these verses, there's a double meaning in the move from physical life and light to spiritual life and light in Christ. He says, the word has bridged the gap between the two. Remember that again, in these verses, there's a double meaning in the move from physical life and light to spiritual life and light in Christ. The Word has bridged the gap between the two. The Word is now the one in whom we can see this physical life and light foreshadowing and showing us this life and light that He offers. He becomes flesh, dwells among us to show... But see, I think our problem is, I think we often equate the word physical with the word real. You know? And the word spiritual with, like, not real. Our modern minds, I think, do this a lot, right? So, if we're talking in terms of spiritual things, we're just, we're only really talking about symbolism, is how our minds function. Like, that's not, that's not a real thing. So, like, there's real life, there's real life. And you have the spiritual life, the spiritual arena, that's like, it's just symbolic, you know? It's, it's not actually real. But this is a mistake because when we actually see the light and life that Jesus offers us increasingly here in John, and even as we saw in Revelation, what we come to find is that they're actually more real than the light and life we experience now. They're more real. They're more tangible. You know, like there was a movement in, in uh, liberal theology, German liberal theology, that started to kind of say, essentially, started to kind of say, you know, um, spiritual stuff. It's symbolic, right? And so, and so the physical doesn't matter, right? So Jesus didn't really physically raise from the dead. It was a spiritual resurrection, and that becomes symbolic or metaphorical for all these other things. Tons of problems with it. First of all, one of them being that Jesus did. There's the, these accounts demonstrate a physical resurrection, but, but more, more to the point, right? It's like there's a physical resurrection precisely because in the Word we see the gap bridged between this spiritual and the physical. The spiritual is not just some mere symbolism. It's actual reality, and it's more real than what we find here. The Word has bridged the gap between the two. These things, life and light in our time, are just shadows of the real thing that is yet to come. We have to fight this instinct of saying, oh, okay, John's speaking about spiritual light here, so not like real light. No, real light. Light's so real that in the end we won't need the light that we currently have because Jesus will be our light. We don't necessarily know how that works itself out experientially yet, but that is what was shown in Revelation. Life's so real that when we experience it, when this earth is redeemed and restored, we, we won't even remember what life was like before. Well, have a hard time remembering like this life in comparison to that life. It'll feel like it was just some dream. John will later quote Jesus teaching his disciples saying, I am the light of the world. We'll hear him say things like, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, so that by believing in him we might all have life, receive life, you know. Um, and, and to make sure that we understand how crucial it is, you know. The, the rest of John's work sets out to show us 
how we can receive this light in life. And to make sure we understand how crucial it is that we receive that light by faith rather than reject that light, John begins to frame that discussion in terms of light and darkness. Light and darkness, you know, like, so look at verse 5 with me again. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Think about this verse in terms of the activity of the word before creation. Jesus says that he's the light of the world. That light, according to verse 2, always existed. Think about this verse in terms of the activity of the word in creation. What does he do? He spoke light into existence, right? Spoke light into darkness. He wants us to envision complete darkness and suddenly pierces of light, like uh, Lewis says, thousand, thousand points of light. Darkness can't actually crowd out or overwhelm light. Light actually always pierces the darkness, right? So it becomes easy for us to envision, and I think this is what John intends, for us to envision thinking about darkness of night, and then what happens when the bright morning sun pierces the darkness, and how, like, unbelievable it is, right? The darkness can't win. And so it's this imagery, with this imagery in mind that we now apply it to the activity of the word in new creation. The reality that though we live in darkness without Christ... He came that darkness in our hearts might be pierced by, by light. See, John wants us to be, he wants to begin his gospel. He wants to begin this account by drawing attention to this problem that we'll see more fully highlighted the next couple of weeks. Namely, our rejection of God. That's the context, as we'll see, right? The word created us, we rejected him. We attempted to overthrow him. And so this verse... It's not just talking about, you know, light being created and penetrating to the darkness of the old creation. It's talking about what Jesus offers to those of us who, who live in darkness without him. And that's interesting because one of the reasons we know that's the case, you know, one of the reasons we know that he's not just talking about creation here, that it's not just related to the old creation in which God spoke light into the world, is because of the way the verse ends. Look at it with me. And the darkness has not overcome it. So that word overcome, it can actually be, some of you are like, that's not what it says. The word overcome can be just as commonly translated understand or comprehend. And so if you're here this morning with like a New American Standard Bible, NASB, or a King James Version, or a 1984 NIV, shout out to what I believe to be the best year of NIV, uh, all three of those will have some version of like understand or comprehend, all right, um, instead of overcome. So NASB reads, the darkness did not grasp it. So, so which is it, right? Well, I don't think they're actually at odds here. I think it actually helps us understand better what John means. Like, I think it essentially has a double meaning. Paul writes that because of our sin, so when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we see like because of our sin, natural man actually can't understand the things of the spiritual realm. Like natural man, because of our sin, in place like we can't understand the things of the Lord. We hear and we don't understand. that We see what we don't see. We're blind to it, right? We don't grasp it. And in not understanding them, what do we do? We reject them. And we actively attempt to overcome or overthrow God's good rule. But the darkness will not overcome it. Carson writes, Darkness in John is not only the absence of light, but positive evil. The light is not only revelation bound up with creation, but rather salvation. Apart from the light brought by the Messiah, the incarnate word, people love darkness because their deeds are evil. And when the light does put in an appearance, they hate it because they do not want their deeds exposed. The John brings up from the very beginning and will show us over and over again in Jesus' teaching, in his interaction with people, and what he ultimately comes to do for us. It's the problem of human sin. 
living in darkness and loving the darkness. Living in darkness and loving the darkness. So just like, you know, I keep coming back to it for a reason, but just like we can envision physical darkness and then the need for light, like we've all been in a situation before where things have been really dark and we're stumbling around in the dark and we need to find like either a light switch or a flashlight, right? Like we know what it's like to feel lost in the dark and, and, and to feel the need for light, right? So like I think if we're being honest, this idea of like living in darkness and loving the darkness, if we're being honest, we, we can all also envision or even identify areas of our life in which unless transformation takes place, we're living or operating in total darkness. Like the darkness of the human heart, I don't think is something that we're unaware of, especially like intuitively related to me, you know? And we understand, we understand this. We understand this idea of loving the darkness. You can think about like a lot of stories in which the villains or monsters of the story not only require darkness because the light, is, they're averse to the light, but they actually come to love the darkness over time. Maybe one of the best examples is like what happens to Smeagol after he mur murders Deagle, Lewis and Tolkien in the same sermon. Um, so Smeagol murders his friend Deagle for this ring found at the bottom of the stream and he flees into the Misty Mountains. This is for you, Jacob. He flees into the Misty Mountains. He goes further and further into the darkness of the mountain and he loves the darkness. That's not, that's not why it's for you. I'm sorry, that sounds... <laughs> side conversation. Everybody's like, what, what happened with Jacob? Okay, um, let us continue. He goes further and further into the darkness of the mountains and he loves it. He loves it. Indeed, he comes to not be able to even comprehend anymore after years and years past, why he or any of the people that he formerly knew would love to live in the light. This is the human heart after sin. Like we retreat into darkness like Smeagol after he becomes Gollum. We become loathful creatures who despise light, no longer understand it, no longer um, understand the world, this good and beautiful world that we were created for, this world that, in which there's light and happiness and joy and streams and fishing and all these things. We forget all of that. We find our way into darkness and we don't understand it, so we come to resent it. And more than that, we come to resent the one who created it. But the good news is that Jesus came to be active, not only before creation and then in creation itself, but because he was active before creation, you know? There was a purpose to his creation. He knew he would be active in new creation to make us alive again. To bring a light to our eyes, you know, like, again, imagine those to whom John's writing here, those who've been seeking the Lord, they're wondering who's the promised one, who's the Messiah, how will he be able to establish God's kingdom here? And John's writing this so that his readers can know the answer to those questions. New Testament theologian Simon Gathercole has this great essay on, like, what is the gospel? Really comprehensive, demonstrates there's not, like, a different gospel of the kingdom in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John versus the gospel according to Paul. He's like, no, this is uh, nonsense and we can, we can demonstrate that that's nonsense. And he does it by the, these three statements that I think fit right in line with John. What he's saying here, what he's going to be saying throughout. So listen, listen. Okay. Um, John wants his readers to know, first of all, Jesus was the promised messianic king and son of God come to earth as a servant in human form. These are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the one who was to come, right? So 
Jesus was the promised messianic king and son of God come to earth as a servant in human form. Why did Jesus come? Why did Christ come? Well, John wants his readers to know, too, by his death and resurrection, Jesus atoned for our sin, secured our justification by grace and not by our works. We're going to talk more about what that means down the road, but essentially he stood in our place as our substitute, receiving what we deserve for our sins so that we might be declared innocent despite the fact that we were guilty on the basis of his innocence and his work on our behalf. Okay, so, so Jesus was the promised messianic king, son of God, come, come to earth as a servant in human form. By his death and resurrection, Jesus atoned for our sin, secured our justification by grace, not by our works. Why does that matter? Well, John wants his readers to know thirdly that on the cross, Jesus broke the dominion of sin and evil over us. At his return, he will complete what he began by the renewal of the entire material creation and the resurrection of our bodies. Everything will be made new so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have a life in his name. There's no other name where you're going to find life, but you can have life in his name. You can have light in his name. You can see again. You can understand the world again. You can breathe deeply of the free air again. Life that starts now and goes on forever. Every one of us through sin rejected Christ. That sin brought death and darkness. It made it so that we couldn't even comprehend God and so we stood opposed to him and yet Jesus came to make all things new beginning with you. By faith in what he has done rather than anything you've done or could do to pull yourself out of death and darkness which you can't do. We can't do. And again, I think there's a part of us that intuitively knows that you can have the life and light that he offers. In the end, you know, this world will be completely remade. Like, that's the good news. Like, John will later write about it in Revelation. The word bridges the gap between the two, right? So, this world will be completely remade. This is why, you know, again, the world of Narnia that Aslan speaks into existence is later remade in Lewis's book in The Last Battle. And one of the Narnians sums up the new creation nicely. He says, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew till now. The reason we came to love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. A foreshadowing of what's to come. So he says, come further up, further in. Come, like, there's more to it. It's more expansive. It's bigger. It's better. It's truer. It's more real. Come further up, further in. The new creation will be the truer, better version of the world we live in now, made possible only because of who God is and what he came to accomplish for us. And it's actually this newness of life that we remember at the table. It is. Like, here at the table, we remember that we've been given newness of life. And so, like, think of it this way. Two ordinances that Jesus gives to the church. Right? Baptism in the Lord's table. Each of them play a part in this idea of newness of life. New life, new creation. How? Well, you know, um, baptism is when a believer, before the congregation, is submersed in water and brought back out to demonstrate that their old selves have died. Right? They've been buried with Christ. And their new selves have been resurrected to walk in newness of life. Right? And so... Um, Baptism. The Lord's table is where we come together then and each week here at Gospel Life Church, but regularly at whatever church you attend, hopefully regularly in some kind of pattern, 
we remember the body of Christ broken for us at the cross, the blood of Christ shed for us, the means of this newness of life, the way in which we could be resurrected is through the cross. So one of the questions I get as a pastor all the time is like, why are we baptized like one time, but we do the Lord's table every week? Why do we have like quarterly baptisms? Where we all get in line again and like be Anabaptists and we're doing this. And it's like, well, just let's think about what these things signify, right? And, and uh, Spurgeon really does a good job with this too. But baptism is like, it happens once because like it represents new birth. How often are you born? You know, you're born once. We're born once into this newness of life. We're not born every week into the new, We don't like fall away and now we have to come back, you know, die again, come back up. Like... This is a once-for-all thing. We're, we're, it's rebirth. It's spiritual rebirth. So it happens once. Lord's table is regular, right? Because after birth, how often do you eat? Do you just eat once and then you're good? You eat once after you're born and then it's like, I got everything I need. No, like, you need nourishment throughout. Without the nourishment, you end up dying. And, like, there's a sense in which, like, why do we come to, why do we, why do we in our newness of life need to, like, feed on the Lord's table together? Because we're forgetful creatures. You know, like it's really easy for us as Christians to forget the love of God. To forget that it's about his work and not my work, you know? That he did this and it's not some self-salvation project. And so like, you know, we've received this newness of life. This is the means of our newness of life. We get to celebrate that every week and remind each other of what Christ has done. So if you're a believer, this meal is for you. Uh, I, I invite you forward to take that with you back to your chair. If you're not a believer here with us this morning, we, we're glad you're here. Observe. Ask questions. Um, come up forward at Q&A and ask me whatever questions you want this morning. But I, I do invite you forward to, to take the elements back to your seats.